Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Actus podcast, Talking CDI, the nation's only program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. The Actus podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, May 15th, marks our 123rd program. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Roadblocks to Accurate Coding, OCG versus the UHDDS. It's going to be a big throwdown on today's show. <laughs> so I'm joined today by my co-host and uh, also serving as guest, Alan Frady. You probably recognize Alan from many of our past programs. He is a CDI education specialist for us here at Actus, where he teaches our clinical documentation improvement boot camps and serving as a subject matter expert. By way of background, Alan is an accomplished consultant with a background in coding and documentation, including more than 12 years um, between coding consultancy, two years as a coding director, and six years as a CDI consultant. His nursing experience includes work as a case manager and in cardiovascular care and ICU and telemetry. So welcome to the program, Alan. Thank you, Brian. All right. Well, as I always do, I'm going to start with a question related to, uh, to with a poll related to today's topic. I'll go ahead and pull that up for you now. Okay. All right, here we go. You should be seeing that on your screen. So the question reads, uh, when push comes to shove, do you follow the official guidelines for coding and reporting, guideline 19, or the UHDDS reporting additional diagnoses guideline? I'm going to be getting into what this, um, what this issue is in just a moment, but your options are you follow the official coding guidelines, guideline 19, the UHDDS. Uh, perhaps you don't see a real conflict between these two. Maybe you don't know or not applicable. Again, um, do you follow the official guidelines for coding and reporting guideline 19 or the UHDDS reporting additional diagnoses guideline? And your options again are guideline 19, the UHDDS, uh, don't see a conflict between the two, don't know, or not applicable. All right, I'm going to be getting into this issue today, and we'll come back to these poll results in just a few minutes. I'm seeing eh, close to 70% of our audience that have voted, so I'm going to go ahead and close this out, and we will uh, come back to these results a little bit later on the show. All right. As I mentioned, our guest today is Alan Frady, regular co-host on the podcast. So by way of background for the show, Alan is scheduled to present a session entitled Navigating Documentation and Coding Regulations in Search of Clinical Accuracy at our 12th annual conference next week. Uh, Alan has a co-presenter, Fassel Hussein, who was, to appear, who was to appear with him to discuss this week's topic. Uh, he could not make the program today but we're hoping he will be joining us on stage uh, next week. And uh, today, Alan's here to discuss this thought-provoking topic and give our listeners a preview of what they can expect in his session next week. 
This is the last of our, of course, of our shows leading up to our 12th annual conference next week in Orlando. So, Alan, you know, the description of your session reads that um, attendees will explore the more controversial and confusing aspects of regula regulations governing code assignment and CDI reviews as the speakers review common roadblocks to accurate reporting. And I would say today's topic definitely qualifies. Um, you know, the genesis of today's show, and, the, and there are many applications and examples, is a conflict that we see sometimes between the official guidelines for coding and reporting, specifically guideline 19, as well as the familiar UHDDS guidelines for reporting um, additional diagnoses. So maybe I'll just recap here what those are for folks briefly. Um, you know, those these are available in the official guidelines for coding and reporting, but essentially guideline 19 says the assignment of a diagnosis code is based on the provider's diagnostic statement that the condition exists. The provider's statement that the patient has a particular condition is sufficient and code assignment is not based on clinical criteria used by the provider to establish the diagnosis. So we, we, we do know this, but the official guidelines also state on page 110, section three, reporting additional diagnoses. Uh, the general rules for other additional diagnoses is uh, interpreted as additional conditions that affect patient care in terms of requiring clinical evaluation, therapeutic treatment, or diagnostic procedures, or extended length of stay, or increased nursing care and or monitoring. So usually one or more of those, not all. Um, so really the big deal here, Alan, is what if the condition's present, okay, and it's, and it's so it's documented, but fails to meet these UHDDS definition, doesn't have one of these additional uh, conditions um, that affect patient care that I just mentioned here. Do we still hold it back and not report it? And many out there interpret guideline 19 as meaning whatever gets documented gets reported, but does it really? So I'll kick it over to you to talk about this a little bit. Uh, okay, so the answer to that question is both yes and no. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's really a lot. <laughs> there's really a lot to unpack here. Um, first of all, just related back to the conference presentation. And doing this and exploring these issues through the regulatory committee and getting ready for this presentation, I realized you could probably do, I'm not kidding, two or three day seminar on just the problems with the guidelines. Um, many of which don't have a clear solution. Honestly, you would be doing the seminar in many situations just to raise awareness and help some of the CDS sharpen their coding um, background. Some of them, however, do have some solutions that we can sort of recommend. Now, from a strict interpretation of just coding guidelines, many coders will report the condition. And I definitely, I might draw some criticism here today. I definitely do not mean to throw the coders under the bus. The coders are in a really tough spot here because they are also trying to figure out which role applies under which situation. And sometimes it's just not clear. So there's more at play than just guideline 19, as you mentioned. The UHDDS definitions are actually part of the official coding guidelines. 
They're mentioned in the official coding guidelines in section two and section three, a total of about 12 times, I think, when I counted in the official coding guidelines. So those five rules of reportability are just as important. In fact, I would go so far as to say more important than guideline 19. The UACDS definitions predate guideline 19 and have been sort of the cornerstone by which uh, clinical validation kind of used to be done. What it does is it makes sure that you're not reporting a non-diagnosis and trying to get money for it. Um, so an example, if you go into it, if you go into section three, the very first thing you see is a reference to guideline 19, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, section three of the official coding guidelines is where guideline 19 is. But the very first thing you see is the UACDS definitions. And keep in mind that in general, things that are in the coding guidelines supersede what is in coding clinic. We do have a pyramid for that. And the, and the UACDS definitions are there, but guideline 19 is also in the official coding guidelines, obviously. So one says, okay, they both made it up to that middle level. Which one do I follow? And I think you have to go a little bit beyond the guidelines to get to that answer. So you have to look at CMS payer requirements, which requires that diagnoses be reasonable, necessary, and supported. And without the five rules of reportability under the UHCDS definition, you may not be actually supporting your diagnoses. So you get into this weird situa situation where it's possible to follow coding guideline, but fail on the UHCDS and also fail on the CMS payer requirement that the diagnoses be supported by the information contained in the record. So we've been talking about this now for greater than two years, and there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of criticism. And my fear is, not to throw coders under the bus, um, but my fear is that the coder can kind of hide behind guideline 19 and say, well, the doctor stated a diagnosis, and my code assignment is not based on clinical criteria, so that's the end of conversation. But you could be violating CMS requirements in the process, and that doesn't get talked about very much. In fact, I don't think we talk about this issue near enough. So do keep in mind, my recommendation here is that you still need to make sure that the diagnosis is evaluated by the physician, and may receive treatment by the physician, gets diagnostic testing, or requires additional length of stay or nursing services before you even consider it. So you could actually drop a diagnosis that was stated by the physician. If it doesn't meet the criteria, I would say the UACDS supersedes guideline 19 in that way. Now, I know some people may actually disagree with me, but if you just put in whatever the doctor says without looking at supporting documentation and the UACDS, that is really a veritable feast for the auditors, okay? It is going to be a good way for your facility to inappropriately manufacture denials, which is not something that we want to do. You get accusations of fraud, you get QTAM and all kinds of stuff if you're doing that. And we, we've seen, you know, lawsuits time and time again where it felt the auditors or the agency felt like we were reporting diagnoses but not supporting them. Right. It really is a, a tough spot, Alan, as you've mentioned uh, eloquently there time and again. Um, and interesting that you are kind of defaulting to UHDDS because they predate guideline 19. So I guess we need to have some 
know, they're, they're sort of the ten, one of the ten commandments of coding, I guess, and go back or to the to the very early days. But um, you know, re really, I think, and you touched on this a little bit, but one of the the, the binds that hospitals are in that, you know, we, we I, I've heard from organizations that will not report a code based solely on a pro the provider's diagnostic statement that the condition exists because they know that without clinical criteria, an auditor will take back that diagnosis or worse, be open to a potential false claims act violation. But what, what also happens on the other side is that, you know, um, if you start choosing which you're going to report, then you have things like um, coders pressured not to report a code that's going to trigger like a PSI, for example, all right, even though that, that could very well be needed to be reported based on, you know, something that a, sur a surgeon did during a procedure. So it, it definitely puts coders in a tight spot. And I don't know if you have any, any thoughts on this practice or any best suggestions you can, you can offer here. Well, it does present a little bit of a double-edged sword because I don't agree that um, coders should be censoring valid physician diagnoses or censor, censoring them because they don't agree with the criteria that the doctor chose. You know, that's one of those stay in your lane type of, of conversation. And it's rare that I actually agree with auditor feedback. But in this case, I actually do only because of the aforementioned issue of making sure that whatever you report has supporting documentation. So if it's a patient safety indicator flag or something that may represent poor quality in a particular instance, but it's a valid diagnosis and the indicators and the story of the patient says you have to report it, then that's where guideline 19 becomes somewhat helpful in that we wouldn't want to take it off. We do need to report those things. We need to track them and we need to try to fix them do root cause analysis and all of that. And a lot of coders, including myself, you know, I worked as a coder for many, many years, get hung up on sort of guidelines, guidelines, guidelines. You know, that's, that's the Bible. But don't necessarily look at the information in something like the CMS Program Integrity Manual or the MedLearn uh, Matters Network that's giving you also information on how to deal with CMS as a payer. And this is where the recovery auditors make their money, okay? Because just because you did get the guideline doesn't mean they can't find something else in the program integrity manual or in the MLN or in the payer requirements that you didn't meet. And so this is a common practice for them to do. Um, and so you, you just have to do that clinical validation. Clinical validation has been a hot topic now for a few years. And you absolutely need to make sure that you're going into the record and making sure that everything that you're submitted is clear, not explainable by other diagnoses, and isn't just a sort of buzzword uh, CDI, okay, in those situations. Remember, if you look at the um, Program Integrity Manual, they said, I think, something like 38 times that you must support your documentation. They use the phrase support in combination with the phrase medical necessity in the, in the CMS program integrity. And uh, my interpretation of that is that guideline 19 is going to have to take a back seat in certain situations. If you're a, a lot of hardcore coders don't necessarily go beyond coding clinic and the official coding guidelines. And again, I think that's where the problem, like I said, it's possible to follow guideline 19 perfectly and still violate CMS payer requirements. Right. Yeah, a couple of comments from listeners, Alan, with the same um, 
you know, that disagreement with clinical indicators is what the clinical validation protocol is for, then you need a peer-to-peer -peer discussion. So more work needed when these situations do arise. Um, someone else raises a point of, isn't this the same as the nurse that goes on with the treatment, knowing that it does not apply to the patient and may harm the patient, but doing it and doesn't question because the doctor said so. So not just a, a, a coding issue all the time. Um, so interesting. All right. Maybe I thought, Alan, we could touch on, uh, I know we're getting a little close on time here, but maybe uh, a practical example or two related to this point that I believe you plan to cover at the conference. You know, we've had, I've been on some of the discussions you've had over email with some folks on the regulatory committee, which you chair for Actus. You know, one of the, one of the, the tricky examples was um, specifically how DSM-5 and CMS criteria seem to differ when it comes to specifying mild, moderate, or severe uh, opioid use and or dependence. So there's a recent trend toward calling it use disorder rather than abuse or dependence, um, both due to fear of patient stigma, impact on DRG assignment, but also some nuances to consider on how to code uh, methadone maintenance when it's not known if the intention is to mitigate opiate opiate dependence or provide long-term pain managements. Um, so I don't know if you had any recommendations on how to handle that. That's probably a show in and of itself, but I think this might be one of the examples you're gonna touch on in your in your presentation next week. It, it probably could be an entire hour by itself, to be honest with you. Um, there's been some, that we got new guidelines on this subject and we've also had some more recent coding clinics but this was an issue that even predates that guidance. Um, as you know, the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, for Psychiatry, has largely moved away from calling either of these problems abuse or dependence. And yet those are the terms that we're stuck with in ICD-10. So we have that mistranslation. As you mentioned, a lot of times the physicians or psychiatrists will document it as a use disorder. And so as, it just puts the code in a bad spot once again because you don't, you don't know what to do with use, ador, use disorder. So we got these guidelines about how to interpret use disorder. Not only that, but you can have abuse in remission, not just dependence in remission, but abuse in remission, something never before conceptualized in coding prior to last year. The third issue being methadone maintenance and how do you deal, which, which version of these codes do you use for a patient who's on methadone maintenance? We have some guidance. It doesn't answer all of the questions, but one of the answers, one of the things that we get from the OCG is that if the patient has a mild level of use disorder, then you should report that as abuse in remission. And if they had a moderate or severe level of use disorder, then you would report that as dependence and remission. Now, interestingly, they only say that you use those standards for distinguishing abuse from dependence for patients who are in remission, but one might assume that the standard would probably be the same for active users, although it's not stated in the guideline anywhere, and even that can be a point of disagreement. So um, let's talk a little bit about methadone maintenance. I mean, for many years, that's been ICD-10 code F1120, opioid dependence, Patients on bridge therapy for opioid addiction and trying to move off of something uh, and eventually hopefully get off of it completely. Coding Clinic second quarter um, 2018, though, is really not talking about an addicted patient. It's talking about patients who are simply on prescription opioids. So somehow or another, patients who are just on opioids 
we're getting tagged with these codes like F11 20 and I don't agree with that. So um, 2018 second quarter pages 11 and 12 says that no code at all should be assigned for someone who's simply on prescription opioids for short-term pain management, especially if there's no associated behavior, mental, or physical disorder as a result of that abuse or use, and it would be use in that case, not abuse. And I wholeheartedly agree with that advice. So that's one of the things that you have to evaluate. Is there behavior, mental, physical type of disorders that are starting to occur in uh, conjunction with that substance use? Because then it may start to move to a disorder. But Generally, you get no code at all for someone who's just on the medicines. That's both in the official coding guidelines as well as it was also mentioned in coding clinic with very similar language both times. Uh, however, if you just go by the conventions and indexing and you see opioid use or whatever, and again, I'm not trying to be unfair to the coders, but if you don't do any critical thinking there and you just follow the indexing, you could still end up tagging that patient with the F1120 code so what is the solution? I would say we need to, again, write in the HA or HEMA, anyone who will listen with these concerns, point out these conflicts and these disparities with the cooperating parties. We have fragmented advice coming from various places. The conventions are supposed to supersede both the guidelines and the clinics, but I don't necessarily recommend that you let them supersede because clearly it'd be an inappropriate situation to, a, to give this opioid dependence to certain people who are on prescription medicines. Right. So great example there, Alan, and another uh, item I, I know you'll be covering next week. And folks, if you're interested in, in getting a, a full hour of, of Alan and, and hopefully his co-presenter, uh, Fassel, um, they will be presenting next week at the conference on this topic. And I'm sure we'll be revisiting some of these topics on future Actus radios as well. Sounds like a great, uh, great session, Alan. Um, and great comments from our folks today, a lot of them coming through, and I'll, I'll share these with Alan after the program as well. I know a lot of discussion about how folks are handling clinical validation and some of these difficult scenarios. I guess it just goes to show you that these are guidelines and they do require uh, interpretation and, and, um, and navigation in, in the real world. All right. Well, our audience poll results are in, but before I share them, I will repeat the question. Uh, again, we said, when push comes to shove, do you follow the official guidelines for coding and reporting guideline 19 or the UHDS reporting additional diagnoses guideline? So you should be seeing those on your screen. It looks like guideline 19 is winning by a narrow margin at <laughs> 32%, 26% of the UHDDS when they see a conflict. 7% don't perceive a real conflict between the two. About a third don't know. So many folks maybe that aren't involved in the coding process aren't necessarily aware of this issue. And then 2% not applicable. I always state that we have listeners that aren't actively in CDI or coding. So those are your results, 32% guideline 19, 26% UHDDS, 7% don't see conflict, and 33% don't know. Any any thoughts here, Alan? Anything surprise you? Well, to rephrase, it looks like you have about one-third in guideline 19 camp, about <laughs> one-third in UHDDS camp, and about one-third in the undecided camp. And what that sort of illustrates to me is just how confusing this is. We have almost an even split across those three perspectives. 
And um, that is what you get when you have advice coming out from the cooperating parties that is so fragmented and so difficult. The result of this, Brian, is that if you were to go out and start to survey charts that are being coded across the country, you will not see any consistency or uniformity. You will see some picking up the diagnoses and you will see some dropping it and you will see some picking it up in certain situations but not others. Those might be the undecided. And so the idea of having that consistency and meaningful data it starts to get destroyed, and I hate to say it, but CMS and the cooperating parties are kind of responsible for some of the destruction of the data being meaningful because they keep trying to manipulate it for paying for payer for dollars. I guess I should say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree, Alan. It does. It it, it is a tough spot, and uh, you can see how it could lead to inconsistent data if hospitals are following these uh, guidelines a little differently, which results are bearing out all right well more work to be done no, and no one said it was going to be an easy job did they <laughs> let's um <laughs> let's go back to our uh, in the news segment so in the news is a regular segment featuring the latest news and industry updates relevant to the cdi profession today i'd like to discuss uh, a recent major announcement by cms uh, the unveiling of the Primary Cares Initiative, or PCI, probably an acronym we're going to be getting uh, more and more familiar with in the coming year. So this is a suite of five voluntary payment models aimed at overhauling primary care, according to a recent article in Health Affairs, which you should be seeing on your screen. Um, there's also, and I'll share these as I always do, there's a nice like one page summary here from CMS um, on their website as well as on cms.gov. Um, that's this is the this one here is the uh, press release from their newsroom. But I'm choosing to follow the health affairs because it's a little probably a little a little more of a of a good overview. Um, so basically, at first glance, this looks to be another move away from fee for service payment towards risk-based contracting. You know, these five models are introducing new and higher payments for practices that care for complex, chronically ill patients, which I, I mean, I think is, a, is good for the future of CDI specialists, since obviously these conditions will need to be documented and, and pro probably clarified. Um, so again, there are five new payment models. We're not gonna cover them all on today's program, but I would encourage folks to take a look at these articles um, there is a description of the primary care first or PCF, PCF pathway from health affairs here. Um, let me move down to that a little bit here. So the PCF pathway offers two models for practices. The first, known simply as the PCF payment model, will adopt a regionally based multi-payer approach to care and payment redesign. Unlike its CPC plus counterparts practices in this model, kind of underline this for myself, won't receive underlying fee-for-service payments, care management fee and quality bonus payments add-on. Instead, these practices will receive risk-adjusted population-based payments with flat primary care visit fees to fund their innovative approaches to care delivery. And practices will also receive performance-based payment adjustments if they perform well on prospectively defined primary care outcomes measures. There is a second model um, that is, um, is for patients with high medical 
complexity called the high need populations payment model which offers a specialized track for practices whose patient populations consist of seriously ill populations requiring more intensive services and CMS in turn offers offering a payment scheme that reflects the high risk nature of these populations just kind of summarizing here from health affairs so um, I was reading some articles on, oh, by the way, and this has an anticipated launch of January 1st, 2020. CMS uh, is moving quickly and says it anticipates releasing a request for application as early as this spring. Um, so again, I was looking at some of the comments across these articles. It's looking like it's not immediately popular with, with physicians, some of whom um, have been balking at the idea of accepting risk for patients whose habits and medication adherence play a large role in these, in their practices, performances on CMS quality measures, um, hard to, to regulate all of that stuff going on outside of their immediate reach. But I suppose it does speak to the need for CDI to get involved in risk adjustment methodologies if they're not already. Um, so an interesting new payment reform from the Trump administration I don't know if you had any thoughts on this, Alan, or just the general sort of uh, implications it might have for the CDI profession. Well, Brian, when you look at some of these, I'm going to call them trial and error payment methodologies because CMS is constantly coming out with a new flavor of some kind of bundled population methodology. When you combine this with the proposed final rule, it's starting to look like CMS is just giving up on severity diagnoses. It's, it's honestly starting to look like they're trying to go to some kind of a risk-adjusted flat rate type of a system. And the idea of comprehensive documentation and comprehensive uh, reporting and severity and good data, it's almost like they're starting, I don't know, that could just be my sour grapes from looking at the proposed rule, to be honest with you. But things are certainly changing in CDI. And as we return more to the chronic disease background, base core DRG and population-based HML and steroid type models, there's still going to be a need for CDS in terms of quality and getting what risk adjustment is needed for this uh, new actuarial risk bucket flavor of the month type of thing. Um, but I think we need to start in CDS, we need to start becoming flexible. So we'll need to become more generalized subject matter experts rather than claiming to be the expert specialist in a single methodology such as MSD or G's. We are going to have to become better acclimated to how ICD-10 works in general coding and general documentation parameters so that we can work in a flexible type of environment. I honestly think, and, and be flexible in terms of the types of cases and the types of conversations that we have. I, I don't know, I just feel like that may be coming. I agree, Alan, it, it does seem that way, you know, and we may be overreacting a little based on the 2020 IPPS rule, um, but it, there definitely, it seems to be a trend in this direction towards maybe moving out of severity, like if that's the equivalent of, um, you know, fee for service sort of in, in, the, in the hospital setting as physicians are traditionally reimbursed under fee for service and moving more broadly toward risk. Um, so something to keep an eye on and monitor. I know we're in, in, in the middle of juggling multiple worlds of payment models, which doesn't make it easier for anyone, but I uh, agree that this, this will be an interesting initiative for us to follow here at Actus. All right. 
Just briefly, I wanted to touch on an Aractus update. If you haven't seen it yet, the May-June edition of the CDI Journal is out. Uh, we have focused uh, this issue on CDI and physician education efforts and helping with solutions for CDI's number one problem, which probably not a surprise, remains physician engagement. So about 57% of respondents to our 2019 membership survey cited physician engagement as one of their top three challenges and frankly the greatest challenge. So if you haven't checked out the May-June edition of the CDI Journal or if you're not a member of Actus, this is now available uh, on the website. All right. Well, that is going to do it for today's edition of the Actus podcast, Talking CDI. So we're taking a bit of a break due to the 12th annual Actus Conference. I'm sure you're probably all sick of me talking about this, but we are uh, off to Orlando next week, and we'll see you back here in three weeks' time for our next show, which will be uh, Wednesday, June 5th. This particular program is a direct answer to um, a series of questions I received from a listener on uh, some tricky scenarios with laceration repairs in ICD-10 PCS, and we'll also be recapping uh, the conference. So I want to thank Alan again for joining us today on a great topic. And as always, if you have any suggestions for future guests, ideas about the format of the show, if you like today's show and you want to hear more of these uh, tough coding topics, for example, send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. That'll do it for today. Thanks again, Alan, and we'll see you guys back here again in three weeks. Take care, everyone.